Spectrum's next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Hi, I'm Rick Karneski. Brad Swift and I are the hosts of today's show. We are speaking with Dr. Tony DeRose, who got his graduate degree from Cal and is now the head of research at Pixar, and Michelle Lubinka the Educational Director for O'Reilly and Maker Media. They are here to discuss the Young Makers Program. This collaboration between Pixar, Make Magazine, and the Exploratorium teams young people with adult makers to create and construct amazing projects for the Maker Fair each year. They'll talk about the program and what you might expect to see from the teams at this year's Maker Fair at the San Mateo Fairgrounds on May 19th and 20th, how you might get involved next year, and about the future of educating and encouraging more young people to make more things in the physical world. And please stay tuned for a chance to win tickets to the Maker Fair after this program. Tony and Michelle, thanks for joining us. Thanks. It's nice to be here. Yeah. Thank you. And can you tell us a little bit about the Young Makers program? Sure, I can start. The program was based, at least in part, on my own family's experience, where several years ago, my older son, who's always loved to build things, grew out of Legos, and we realized there was nothing for him to really graduate into until we discovered Maker Fair in 2006. So we went to Maker Faire a couple times as spectators, and then starting in 2008, we started creating our own projects to share. And we had such a great time, and we all learned so much that the Young Makers program is an attempt to try to bring that sort of experience to other kids and other families. Tony came to us at Make and Maker Faire and was also having a conversation with our collaborators, Mike and Karen, at the Exploratorium about potentially doing some work that could get more kids excited about science and technology. We all agree that this is something that really needs to be done, and we're all excited about working together. Let's do it. So back in, it was 2010, right? We launched a pilot, and we had 20 kids come create projects, which they exhibited at Maker Faire that year. Everything from a hamster habitat that functions also as a coffee table to a fire-breathing dragon all things that the kids came up with of their own design and worked with mentors to create over the space of a few months leading up to Maker Fair. So Michelle said in the pilot run in 2010, we had about 20 kids. Last year, we had about 150 participants total. About 100 were kids and 100 were adult supporters in various roles, mentors and club managers. This year, we have about 300. So we're growing pretty rapidly. What we're trying to do now is start to think about how to scale beyond the Bay Area and help to create similar efforts in at least other metropolitan regions, if not, you know, even rural regions. Nationally or eventually internationally? Eventually internationally. There's nothing that would constrain this to the U.S. We're already international. I think we have a group in Calgary, Alberta, right, that Mm -hmm. started up. And do you see an advantage or disadvantage that Young Makers is mostly outside of schools? It started mostly outside of schools, but we're really looking for early adopter kind of teachers like Aaron at at the Lighthouse School to see if we can adapt it to in-school. 
school curricula is a really complicated thing. So right. we don't want to be gated on, you know, widespread immediate adoption. So we're, we're trying to develop a lot of models and materials and resources and best practices in whatever setting we can run the fastest, which happens to be informal out of school after school. But I think a lot of the materials that we're developing will hopefully be usable by teachers addressed toward academic curriculum during the school day. Mm. Just mm -hmm. to follow up on the Lighthouse Charter School. Sure. So we're hoping they're going to be a part of a project that we're doing to get more making back into high schools. So mm. I'm sure you know that a lot of schools have been gutting their technical arts programs, technical education. They've got lots of vocational ed. They've also been calling these. We're trying to reverse that trend. And we got some funding from DARPA to work on getting making back into schools. And it's called the Makerspace Project. So we are trying to find 10 schools in California this year and then 100 the following year and then a thousand the year after that, all around the country, a thousand. And this is to try to create those kinds of shop spaces. So this kind of thing is happening at Lighthouse Charter School already, but we'd like to see a lot more of it happening. Are there other corporate sponsors that are interested in joining the program? Yes, there has been a lot of uh, corporate interest in uh, getting involved with the maker movement. And so as part of that, we are starting the Maker Education Collaborative. Do you want to say something about that, Tony? One of the motivations for the, the collaborative is we, we began to realize that there's so many different ways to connect kids with making. The Young Makers program is, you know, out of school, typically more ambitious, middle and high school level, but you could change all those choices to be in school, younger. And so there's a whole bunch of variations and probably so many variations that no one company or no one organization could, could do it all. But if you look at, at the, the various different programs that could be created, there's a lot of overlap in the, in the needs and the resources. And so one of the things the collaborative is trying to do is pull together a common platform so that as companies or organizations want to launch something, they don't have to start from dirt. There's a, a big network that they can plug into and you know get off and running really quickly. Mm -hmm. You are listening to Spectrum on KALX. Today we're talking with Michelle Hubink of Maker Media and Tony DeRose of Pixar about the Young Makers program that promotes young people to make fantastic things. Maker Fair is this really family-friendly event. Tony came with his family, and what we love about the family model is that it's a really nice way that people have been able to engage and get closer and work together with their kids in the way that I think we imagine happened back in the Norman Rockwell era a lot more than it does today, now that we're much more in a screen-based society. But part of our job is getting kids to either get away from the screens or only use those screens when they need to find out what they need to do to get back off the screens again. Well, that's certainly interesting coming from someone from Pixar who makes relatively <laughs> passive entertainment, right? Uh, right, but if you think about the, the, the kinds of people that, that we have now and that we want to continue to hire, they're, they're people that know how to learn on their own. They work really well in groups. They're highly multidisciplinary. And those are, those are exactly the attributes that, that the Young Makers program is designed to develop and the kids that participate have those traits. We're just trying to, you know, help 
help them grow in, in all those ways. And one of the nice things about the, this more ambitious project that we have this year is it's not just our family. It's, it's five families working together. So it becomes really a community building activity. Mm. And, you know, the neighbors that walk by, you know, get drawn in because they see all this crazy stuff going on in the driveway. And it, so it's just a, you know, really wonderful, healthy thing that everybody can contribute to and feel good about. So you touched upon the kinds of people that Pixar is interested in. Are there other things that set Pixar and O'Reilly and the Exploratorium apart that make them natural fits for sponsors? Well, for one thing, we're not afraid to make mistakes. <laughs> so when we started working on this program, none of us knew how this was going to work. So in true maker spirit, we just sort of jumped in and we're figuring out stuff as we go. Yeah, we all appreciate learning by making. I think all of us appreciate story in a different way. Mike and Karen, especially at the Exploratorium, are very good about documenting the work that they do and sharing that story and helping other museums explore that same theme. Tony, obviously, at Pixar, they're in the business of making stories, and we're all about hunting out those stories and sharing them with others. What do you think of creativity in digital environments? I think we're all fans of creativity in whatever form it takes. My younger son is really into Minecraft right now. One of the things you can really see is his spatial reasoning has become incredibly honed. <laughs> he can go into one of these environments that he's built and, you know, and they're, they're very extensive. He can, he can navigate through those those mazes very quickly and it's become a community thing too. So that he has friends that, you know, get out and play together. You know, I think you can take anything too far. And so we have to work to dial that back a little bit. But I think our point of view is that there are lots of burgeoning virtual opportunities for creativity. Minecraft is one, video editing, web design, but the opportunities to express creativity in physical form is diminishing. And that's, that's the trend we're trying to reverse. What kinds of things did you make when you were younger? Uh, well, I'm well known in my circle of friends for making calendars, of all things. I had a character named Binka, obviously a pseudonym for myself, who went on adventures around the world. And then I tried to pack in as many facts into this calendar as I could. So I did oodles of research trying to find something related to my theme every year. So one year it was Binka goes to ancient Egypt, Binka goes to the art museum. And so I tried to find facts for every single day of the year to share with people. Part of the reason I left those calendars, though, is because I was getting more and more excited that we learn in a hands-on way. And so the, the kind of pedagogical <laughs> stance of this fact-filled, trivia-based calendar had nothing to do with hands-on learning, and so I've been trying to resolve that. <laughs> what do you think makes for a good project for the young makers? I think the most important thing for a project to have is that the person making it has a passion about it and is excited to make it. Usually, the more successful projects also have something a little bit quirky or unusual about it, sometimes bringing together two disparate things that nobody has put together before. So I'm trying to think of a great example of that. Well, the hamster habitat, the coffee right. table. <laughs> <laughs> for example, bringing together a need for a space for a hamster to live and wanting it to be an attractive centerpiece of a living room in the form of a coffee table. That would be an example of a quirky approach to solving a problem. I think a couple of other attributes that make a project, you know, really worthwhile is to, 
is for the team to pick a project that is just beyond or maybe even a little bit further than just beyond their current abilities so that when they complete it, they really feel a sense of accomplishment. It's not a done deal going in. There's There are all sorts of twists and turns. And one of the challenges that the, the mentors are posed with is how to assess the, the skills of the team and help to dial in so that you hit that that sweet spot that's just it, it, it's ambitious but not too ambitious. It's just a natural part of the process to hit failures and roadblocks. And our approach is learn from the failures, figure out how to get around the roadblocks, and pick up the pieces and go on. So for us, failure isn't something to be avoided. It's something to be embraced and, and learned from. And are most of the projects finished to completion? We were, we've were we been very surprised. The My expectation, anyway, was we might get completion rates of maybe 30 to 50%, something like that. And we've seen typically more like 80% completion mm-hmm. rates, so... It's amazing how motivating a deadline is, isn't it? (laughs) A lot of that completion has to do with we work very hard to help them find the the mentoring that they need in order to complete it. I remember last year, something that seems like it was going to be pretty simple, a couple of girls, well, not the project wasn't simple, but finding them a mentor seemed like it would be simple. They wanted to create a pedal-powered car. So we tapped into some of our bike networks because As you can imagine, the bicycling network and the network of people who are excited about making overlap pretty heavily. Sent out email after email, and then we discovered that part of the problem was that these girls were making it at their school, Lighthouse Charter School here in Oakland. They're working on the project at school, but they don't have the facilities for fabricating and doing the welding there. And so it's also a matter of trying to get the kids to the fabrication facility or get that convince that bike guy to haul all the welding stuff probably on his bike to Lighthouse Charter School. So those are the kinds of things that we're trying to figure out in these first few years when we're doing the mentor matching. You're listening to Spectrum on KALX. Today, we're talking with Michelle Hubink of Maker Media and Tony DeRose of Pixar about the Young Makers program. That encourages young makers to team with adult mentors to make fantastic projects and show them off at the Maker Fair. Do you think the kids who don't finish still get a lot out of the program? Oh, yeah. So they, they did finish. I want to. <laughs> they did finish it. It was a beautiful pink pedal powered bike. But what it meant is that, you know, as we were getting closer and closer to that deadline of Maker Fair, we, we had to work harder and harder to persuade someone to come and work with them and help them achieve what they were trying to do. But they, of course, I think also had to scale back a little bit. That's a big part of this is setting real expectations for what can be accomplished in time for it. One thing that we're very excited about this program in contrast to other programs is that we really put an emphasis on exhibition over competition. This is an event where you know whether you have succeeded or failed based on how you interact with others and how they can understand what motivated you and what the project is all about. And kids know whether or not their project worked or not. One of the other things that distinguishes the program from a lot of other activities right now is that the projects aren't in response to a challenge that's posed by adults or organizers. The project visions come from the kids themselves. So they're very open-ended. They're very broad. They're often extremely multidisciplinary, you know, combining in very natural ways, various branches of science, engineering, art, music, 
And there's this unifying vision that pulls all those disciplines together. And I, I think the non-competition and open-endedness is one of the reasons that we see a higher percentage of girls than a lot of other programs. We're about 40% girls right now, where I think a lot of other activities, science fairs and, and competitions are much more male-oriented. Is the way that the girls and boys approach the program different in any way? Yes, there are a few gender differences, I think, that, that, that tend to occur, not universally, of course. But one is that the boys often want to work in small groups or alone, whereas the girls tend to want to work in larger groups. How large is large? Three or four is the typical size. We had one group, I think, last year with about seven girls working together on a water totter. It was a mm -hmm. pump that was powered by a seesaw. I think another gender difference we've seen echoed in a number of projects is girls tend to want to work on things that are socially beneficial <laughs> and like uh, a water kind of <laughs> right <laughs> or or the hamster habitat mm. uh, whereas the boys often gravitate towards something that's a little edgier or more dangerous spits out fire for yeah instance. fire is a good one yeah, yeah. And that's okay <laughs> one of our mottos is you know anything cool is fair game do something cool do something you're passionate about and it'll probably fit right in and how do you guys help recruit and improve mentors for the program? For recruiting, we, we've tapped into our own social networks. So there are a lot of participants from Pixar, for instance, that are sort of natural born makers themselves and you know, are interested in, in teaching. Yeah, this upcoming Maker Fair, I believe, is our 13th event. And at each one, we have 600 to 1,000 makers. So often what we'll do is, well, if a kid has a specific question, we'll try to find a mentor, sometimes local, but sometimes they're okay with asking and answering questions from farther away. When the makers would sign up for Maker Fair, we would ask them, would you be willing to mentor? I think for this round, we actually took that question out because we found that most makers, again, because of that generosity of spirit that characterizes the Bay Area and I think makers in any place, they don't say no when you ask them a question because they're excited for there to be more people like them that have this innate curiosity. So they're, they're happy to fuel that. We also get people finding the website and you know hearing stories like this and they are drawn into the program through those means as well. You are listening to Spectrum on KALX. Today we're talking to Tony DeRose of Pixar and Michelle Lubinka of Maker Media about the Young Makers Program that helps students create and exhibit their projects at Maker Faire. Another great example is a boy in Arizona, Joey Hootie. So we got to talking. We, Joey created a project, brought it to Maker Faire. It was a pneumatic marshmallow cannon. And we come to find out that Joey suffers from Asperger's syndrome, but he just flourishes in the making community. So he came to Maker Faire. He had a great time. I think they've been to basically every making event in every city since then. And it was really exciting to see him invited to the White House. There was a wonderful picture of Joey and the president. And it's, it's the most Here's wonderful, probably just off yeah. camera. Yeah. But the, the look on President Obama's face is just priceless. You know, his, his jaw dropped, basically. So it was just, I think it's been a you know, life-changing experience for Joey and, and, and hopefully can be for a lot of other, you know, similar kids. The kids at the next table, too, are in the New York Times picture are kind of cowering in horror <laughs> as they watch him launch this marshmallow into the wall of the stateroom. But I'm also interested if any of the young makers who have made projects before are interested in coming back and being mentors. Are they 
sort of gung-ho about continuing the program? We don't have a long enough track record to have kids that have graduated come back as mentors. Most of them that graduate go off to college, typically studying engineering programs. What we have seen is some of the more advanced and older young makers mentoring some of the younger young makers in the program. And that's another reason that the club model is really nice because there's not only inter-age learning, but we've seen intergenerational learning. In fact, we had one team last year where there was a young maker, the father was the main mentor, and the grandfather was also participating. The grandfather was kind of an old-school electrical engineer, and the project was to build a police car instrumented with various sensors and sounds. So the grandfather's first reaction was, you know, let's build custom circuits for each of those functions. And somebody in one of the plusing suge sessions suggested looking at Arduino, which is a an embedded microprocessor system. And so they ended up adopting Arduino for the project. The, the young maker ended up teaching the grandfather about embedded microcontrol software. And so the, the learning goes both ways. How can people get involved with Young Makers next year? If you're interested in participating in the 2013 season of Young Makers, go to youngmakers.org. There's a sign-up link on the left margin. We'll get you on our mailing list, and we'll let you know as the season starts to spin up. And what can people expect from Maker Fair in a couple weeks? So Maker Fair is coming up May 19th and 20th, Saturday and Sunday at the San Mateo Expo Center. It's this fun-filled weekend of DIY, do-it-yourself, technology and art, a little bit like Burning Man without the drugs, sandstorms, and nudity. The team that was working on the water totter, they were thinking of making a three-hump wump from Dr. Seuss, but scaled back. I think the original is a seven-hump wump. <laughs> <laughs> so... We have everything from the Coke Zero Mentos fountains and the Architect, which is a performance of Tesla coils and heavy rock music, which is fantastic, to 600 other people showing off their projects in arts, crafts, engineering, green design, music, science, technology, rockets and robots, felting, beekeeping. We've got it all. If you want more information, go to makerfair.com. That's M-A-K-E-R-F-A-I-R-E.com. Don't forget the E. It's the greatest show and tell on earth. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. It's been great. Thanks. A regular feature of Spectrum a calendar of some of the science and technology events happening in the Bay Area over the next few weeks. Lisa Kotovich and Brad Swift join me for this. One of the most fundamental questions in biology is why we age. On Monday, May 7th, the Department of Molecular and Cell Biology at UC Berkeley will present the seminar Cellular Metabolism, Aging, and Disease from 4 to 5 p.m. at the Li Ka Shing Center. The featured speaker is Donica Chen from Berkeley Center for Nutritional Science and Toxicology. Chen will address the aging process and therapeutic targets to slow down aging. Putting water online. On Wednesday, May 9th, the Floating Sensor Network team will conduct a major experiment. They will launch the complete 100-unit floating sensor fleet and introduce the fleet and its real-time sensing capabilities to the public. Wednesday morning, the fleet will be launched from Walnut Grove, California and cycled through the Sacramento River Georgiana Slough environment for the rest of the day. At 4 p.m. in Sutarjadai Hall on the UC Berkeley campus, there will be a roundtable discussion and public seminar. 
During the roundtable discussion, water researchers will explore the implications of this emerging sensing technology on the future of California's water management challenges. For more information or to RSVP for the event, contact Lori Mariano. Her email address is lori at citrus-uc.org. The general meeting of the Bay Area Mycological Society is on Thursday, May 10th from 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. in room 338 of UC Berkeley's Koshland Hall. At this free event, you can have your mushrooms identified and then listen to an 8 p.m. presentation by Alan Rockefeller on the mushrooms of Mexico. He discusses his extensive fieldwork from his most recent four-month trip, as well as other trips over the past five years in seven Mexican states. He'll show images of the edible, poisonous, and psychoactive mushrooms he has collected, DNA sequences, phylogenetic trees, micrographs, and mushroom food. For more information, visit www.bayareamushrooms.org. Nerd Night San Francisco is celebrating their second anniversary soon. We will have the organizers on Spectrum on June 15th. They host a monthly gathering of nerds with three presentations and drinking on the third Wednesday of every month at the Rickshaw Stop, 155 Fell Street at Van Ness in San Francisco. The 24th installment will be an all-ages show on May 16th. Doors at 7.30, show at 8. Admission is $8. I'm excited to have two of my friends giving talks this time around. UC Berkeley postdoc Brian Patton discusses atomic magnetometry. Megan Carlson talks about Kauai, the art of supercute. And Logan Hesse weighs in on the vagaries of the English language. For more information, visit sf.nerdnight.com. That's sf.nerdnite.com. And now for some science news headlines. Here's Lisa Kotovich and Brad Swift. A study presented at the Experimental Biology Conference in San Diego in April reported that migraine sufferers are more likely to experience brain freeze. By bringing on brain freeze in the lab in volunteers and studying blood flow in their brains, researchers from the Department of Veteran Affairs, the National University of Ireland in Galway, and Harvard Medical School found that the sudden headache seems to be triggered by an abrupt increase in blood flow in the anterior cerebral artery and disappears when the artery constricts. The findings could eventually lead to new treatments for a variety of different headaches. This dilation, then quick constriction, may be a type of self-defense for the brain. Because the skull is a closed structure, the sudden influx of blood could raise pressure and induce pain. This vasoconstriction may be the way to bring pressure down in the brain before it reaches dangerous levels. Drugs that block sudden vasodilation or target channels involved specifically in the vasodilation of headaches could be one way of changing a headache's course. And that would be good news for the approximately 10% of the population that suffers from migraines. Will Johnson sent in an Ars Technica summary of an April 22nd Nature Physics article by Zhao Song Ma and others from the Austrian Academy of Sciences. Quantum entanglement is a process by which forcing one particle into a given state can make a second particle go into another given state, even if it is far away. Ma's team has shown experimentally that, through a process known as delayed choice entanglement swapping, the result of a measurement may be dependent upon whether entanglement is performed after the measurement. They used a pulsed ultraviolet laser beam and beta barium borate crystals to generate two polarized entangled photon pairs. We'll call them photons 1 and 2 and photons 3 and 4. Photons 1 and 4 have their polarities measured. Photons 2 and 3 are each delayed and then subjected to either an entangled state measurement or a separable state measurement. But the choice of this measurement determines what was measured for photons 1 and 4. This quantum steering of the past challenges the ordinary notion of spacetime. 
DNA traces cattle back to a small herd domesticated around 10,500 years ago. All cattle are descendant from as few as 80 animals that were domesticated from wild ox in the Near East some 10,500 years ago, according to a genetic study reported by Science Daily. An international team of scientists from the National Museum of Natural History and CNRS in France, the University of Mainz in Germany, and UCL in the UK were able to conduct the study by first extracting DNA from the bones of domestic cattle excavated in Iranian archaeological sites. These sites date to not long after the invention of farming and are in the region where cattle were first domesticated. The team examined how small differences in the DNA sequence of those cattle, as well as cattle living today, could have arisen given different population histories. Using computer simulations, they found that the DNA differences could only have arisen if a small number of animals, approximately 80, were domesticated from wild ox. The study is published in the current issue of the Journal of Molecular Biology and Evolution. The music you heard during today's program was by Lastana David from his album Folk and Acoustic. It is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Only License, version 3.0. Spectrum was recorded and edited by me, Rick Karneski, and by Brad Swift. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. We are happy to hear from listeners. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time. <laughs>